it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Hi there, you're listening to The Evening Glass on One Sensational Shot. This is where we talk about uh, the latest goings-on in the world of movies, TV, whatever it might be. Uh, It's just a casual little fireside chat with me, Luke Littleboy, and uh, my very best friend and co-host, Mr. Fletcher Walton. Fletcher, how's it going? Are you well? Good evening. I'm quite well. It's been six weeks since our last recording. It's been quite some time. I have been busy. I've had a few articles published on our on our site, <laughs> yeah. One Sensational yeah, Shot, and I, I do. I would like some feedback on that, and I hope that people can get stuck into what we've had to say about Shane Black. The next one will be published any day now, and then um, then we come to the end of Black History Month. Four articles in four weeks. Luke mm-hmm. and I will watch Mike the Detective by Chris Matheson, starring Shane mm-hmm. Black, and I don't know what I'll do. I've really enjoyed the time that I've spent writing. It's reminded me how much I enjoy writing, and I hope you all will enjoy it too. I hope mm-hmm. you get something from it. And yeah, now sure. we're back to recording. Now we're back to now we're back to the podcast, and hopefully all through October, November, and into December, every seven to ten days, you'll receive a dispatch from Luke and I about the current state of cinema. <laughs> That's absolutely right, and uh, yeah, it's good to be good, good back and recording again. But like you mentioned. Um, We've been trying to update the website with a few more articles off the back of the podcast we did a few weeks ago uh, about Shane Black, and we focused on the Lethal Weapons um, in particular, uh, as well as Monster Squad and and the, and the likes. There, um, it's been um, it's been good to to get a few words out about Shane Black. So do go to onesensationalshot.com uh, and check out our overview of uh, his career, I suppose, with our our own personal spin on it, and trying to call out throughout his films filmography trying to call out as many Shane Black tropes uh, as as possible as, as you, we, we move through but yeah do let us know because we want to start writing more articles I've been trying to trying to pen one for many weeks now about uh, Jurassic Park it's kind of finding the time to do it but uh, Jurassic Park being one of my I think the first film the second film I ever saw at the cinema so I've been trying to put together something along those lines and there's um, lots lots more to come the only other thing I should mention about the website as well is that I did give it a bit of a refresh it's got a bit of a new look so uh, we may revert back Fletch and I were just having an argument before we came on air about whether we should revert oh come on it wasn't an argument it was a -a tete-a-tete if it was that (laughs) <laughs> if, uh, about we sh- if, whether we should just revert back to the old one or not we're, we're struggling with that so uh, user feedback is uh, very much appreciated uh, as to whether you like the new look onesensationalshot.com or the, the old version but uh, at some point we, we're well aware that we need to improve the look and feel of the website but uh, I've, tr- I've given an attempt at that right now so do let us know what you think of course uh, you can get in touch with us at any time on the website there's a contact form uh, there's also uh, the Facebook page of course One Sensational Shot uh, and if you search uh, Twitter our Twitter handle is at One Sensational so you can get in touch with us there um, looking at my ticket stubs though Fletch from the last time we recorded I know we won't get a chance to go through all of these first films but it, it really does bring in bring into sharp focus how many films that i've managed to see we've got logan lucky here i've seen detroit two films that i enjoyed a lot although logan lucky left me wanting a little bit i must say i thoroughly enjoyed it uh the 
obviously the adaptation of the Stephen King novel. I even did my homework with that, Fletch. I went back and I watched the original um, TV miniseries of It with mm. uh, with Tim Curry because I'd never seen it before. No, I have to. It's too I have scary. To see... <laughs> you say that, Fletch? No, uh, it is, isn't well... it? No, I, I know. That I, well, I knew when I was that came out, and I was I wasn't even a teenager, and I'd heard it was scary. And then the stand, the the two or three part of the stand with Rob Lowe, Gary Sinise, Ed Harris in cameo, I watched yeah. that and had nightmares for only the second or third time in my life, really. Uh, so I never went anywhere near it because Tim Curry's disconcerting at the best of times, even when he's just a, um, oh, I've forgotten the word. Uh, Transsexual, transvestite yeah, yeah. <laughs> from Transylvania or whatever. I'm just a sweet transvestite. From transsexual Transylvania. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's he's odd enough there. So I don't need to see him as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Uh, Would it well, be a very Rob... different film if it was the other Skarsgård? If it was Alexander, that's what I've been wondering because it's Bill who's got <laughs> his own look and he's a handsome fellow. But is uh, I think those children would be running towards Alexander, wouldn't they? It wouldn't be their greatest fear. It would be, wow, awesome. It's the bloke <laughs> from True Blood. Yeah, by all means, nibble on my neck. <laughs> I think you could well be right there. I have to say that um, I normally rub... Uh, sorry, rub? <laughs> Freudian slip. Uh, I have nightmares every time I uh, think about Rob Lowe anyway. So that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, the original It, the original early... Ni- I think it was 1990 miniseries... Lex and I went uh, into into the city, got that on DVD, especially just so we could watch it and do our homework right. before we saw the new the new uh, adaptation in the movies. And I have to say, uh, I'm sure it would have been very very scary if you were around in the early '90s watching that film. It's aged appallingly. It's really yeah. terrible. It's in two parts. The first part is with the kids, and then the second part is kind of present day. With, when they're adults, and the and first that's how they split the movie as well. Yeah, 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 and the first part works. It it works well, and you've got um, it's it's uh, notable for its early appearance of Seth Green as well, which is uh, which is interesting. But um, the, and the movie works very well like that too. It feels like a real really good adventure romp. Um, funnily enough, it's interesting to see you know how similar it is to Stranger Things, which of course Stranger Things you know being influenced by it among lots of other influences as well. But uh, the second half of the TV miniseries uh, left an awful lot to be desired. There's uh, First off, there's just really, really cheesy, terrible uh, TV Movie of the Week acting, which I guess it was TV Movie of the Week, so maybe it's a little unfair to say. Um, it, and I think it, to cap it all off, there's just a really appalling use of a stop-motion spider. And um, there's I, I'm a big fan of stop-motion at the best of the times, Fletch. I... I really do like some of the old school effects uh and i like you know the ray harryhausen stuff from the 60s or whatever this this stop motion spider just uh gives gives stop motion spiders a really bad name <laughs> if i'm perfectly perfectly honest with you it's the cheesiest yeah. dumbest thing you'll ever see it has not aged well and the the damn thing is just so long because it's not really a movie it's a tv miniseries yeah. But in addition to it, which uh, I really did enjoy in the cinema, I also most recently saw um, Goodbye Christopher Robin, which uh, was enjoyable. It was enjoyable enough. It was schmaltzy, but uh, it definitely, um, it definitely was was good fun. And um, it was it was uh, Margot Robbie was fantastic in it as an example. Um, and 
that was uh, that was a good one to go see actually in the cinema. It's it's definitely one you'd see on a Sunday afternoon with family as opposed to maybe going to see it on your own or or necessarily with your partner. But Lex and I enjoyed that well enough, and um, it definitely does tell the dark side of the A.A. A. Milne uh, story and the fact that his you know his well gritty he, reboot he, yeah he did not get on very well with his son. I didn't know much going into it, and I I knew that he did not get on well with his son, yeah. uh, Chris Christopher Robin, and I know that um, his son blamed him for selling him out you know and uh using using his persona uh to, to to craft the this series of books that then became a worldwide smash and it definitely doesn't shy away from that it's 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 a film about a family that does not get on and it's and the family is fractious and uh um they only have very very small moments in their lives which are um which are enjoyable and the film to not give too much away of the spoiler, you know, but the the, the film that the, it really does centre on a, a couple of weeks where he's left alone with his son, and they actually do enjoy the things like the the poo sticks and all this kind of thing that he then yeah. immort- immortalises in the books, uh, and it's like it, it, it's funny because the Winnie the Pooh books are essentially as well as his post traumatic stress disorder of being a surviving officer from world war one the winnie the pooh books as, as well as that are, are kind of based on the, this two weeks of joy that he had with his son where uh, apart from that he was you know either working too much or uh dealing with uh shell shock or, or whatever it might be so yeah it's, mm. it was it, it does have a dark side it's very it it's schmaltzy and cheesy but um it and it's it's definitely a tearjerker but yeah, it I, would I think... mess you up, wouldn't it, if you had a single fortnight with your family or your father that you enjoyed, and then that was monetized and given to everyone in the world. Mm-hmm. And it centers as well on the terrible experience he had growing up when, of course, he was a worldwide celebrity as Christopher Robin. And uh, as soon as anyone, because he then went to boarding school, and you know he then uh, was an officer himself, or or not an officer. I think he's just a private. But in any case, you know he then had to deal with growing up. And as as I'm sure you can imagine, without seeing the film or even knowing anything about the back, about the backstory, if you're an adolescent uh, as the world famous Christopher Robin, the boy who kind of never grew up in a way, he uh, he he doesn't come out of it very well. And uh, he um, he's certainly very scarred from it too. So yeah, it's uh, it, goodbye, Christopher Robin. Is I, I would it's like a solid, solid drama. Uh, I'm a sucker for any period dramas, though Fletch. I really do like anything mm. period. I would highly recommend it. To be honest with you, it's not gonna. I, I don't think it's gonna feature in my te- top ten films of the year, but it was it was very enjoyable. It had a story to tell, and uh, all the performances were really, really, really solid as well. So um, uh, you, you may jest, but goodbye, Christopher Robin wasn't entirely. Uh, you know, two hours not entirely spent in vain. But the thing I was going to talk to you about is that the last time I actually went to the pictures to go and see Blade Runner 2049. And I'm assuming that you've managed to catch this one yourself as well. Yeah, I didn't see all the ones in between. I didn't see Blade Runners 2 through 2048. <laughs> but I've seen the first one and I've I've seen the most recent one, yeah. Um, one of my favourite online YouTube channels red letter media who are really good guys who are very passionate about film and tv but nevertheless have a healthy bit of cynicism and i'm going into it only so i can footnote them appropriately because i enjoyed the joke uh they did enjoy the film but they did say that it should be called uh blade running time 2049 minutes (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know where they're getting an extra third from when the original was only two hours 
give or take, and this one is an additional 40 minutes. I thought you might be able to help me with the case. Any idea where I could find him? Your police plan on taking me in. I would much prefer that to the alternative. was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. I had the luck, and he has the key. I think I found him. That's not possible. If this gets out, we've bought ourselves a war. You're a cop. I did your job once. Things were simpler then. What do you want? I want to ask you some questions. What happened? I covered my tracks. Scrambled the records. We were being hunted. By who? So, obviously, I'm a big fan of the original, although I have to say I'm really most familiar with the final cut. I'm not so familiar with the theatrical cut. I think I'd go as far to say as I don't I don't think I've ever seen the original theatrical cut with the Harrison Ford uh, film noir detective style uh, voiceover. And uh, you've, you've seen that quite a bit, haven't you? I think the original theatrical version, right? No, I've seen that only once. I grew up with the director's cut, which I suppose came out in about 92. And that doesn't have the horse, or does it have the white horse? Because how many versions of Blade Runner are there? Seven? It's a unicorn, little boy. <laughs> it's the unicorn, sorry. <laughs> I anyway, I was just trying to, trying to uh, get my bearings on uh, what, what cut you're most familiar with. Well, but... yeah, it's interesting that I think because we were slightly removed from the films we grew up with, we, they were the films we know from our youth existed by the time we were growing up. Mm-hmm. So our friend Neil Byrne was born in '73. So, sure, he Blade Runner was at the cinema. Um, yeah, Aliens was at the cinema. That's where he first saw them. Whereas we were born in '83 and '87, and it meant that we could turn on the television and see Blade Runner. And by that time, by the time we were cine literate, even as young people in the mid '90s, it was already common for Terminator 2 Special Edition to be on, Alien Special Edition to be on. And by then, the end of the century and going into this century, those are the versions which are only shown. So the only versions that are seen are the longer cut of Aliens, Terminator 2, The Abyss, and Blade Runner in particular. It's I always found it rare. And so perversely, as a teenager, I was trying to find the original versions of both Aliens and Blade Runner to record them and see what the differences were. Although, obviously, with Blade Runner... It's um, the changes are authorial and in terms of filmmaking rather than with Cameron's where you know you're getting an extra 20 or 30 minutes. I mean, it's all good stuff, but the the cuts are for pacing rather than the very minute differences between cuts in Blade Runner, which have a, a, a massive impact on the theme, I suppose. But mm. it's not as though, um, hey, did you ever want to see what Deckard gets up to on a weekend? 
Well, here's three scenes that illustrate that. Blade Runner 2049, certainly a long time coming. I don't probably have to go into too much of the background here. Anyone listening to this podcast, I think, will, will be aware of the fact that you know the original made only 30 million, uh, was a slow burn and developed a cult following. Uh, one of my first interactions with it was actually the 90s point-and-click adventure on PC, which was um, a Blade, yeah. which was a story that was, I think, you were playing a different uh, detective or different Blade Runner, and uh, to Harrison Ford's character. And I think it was like c- concurrent. I think you're on the trail of Harrison Ford in some way. I think it was kind of concurrent to the to the film or something. But in any case, um, Blade Runner 2049 finally finally released, and uh, it's finally the sequel. I personally think. Um, the, the perfect sequel for Blade Runner. And uh, I'll tell you some listener feedback as well that we, we got from Tom Hadley, who got in touch to one sens- with One Sensational Shot on the Facebook page. Uh, he says uh, that he saw it opening night, was blown away. I couldn't care less if it bombs at the box office, so did the original. It's one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made. And I think, uh, I think by, by that he's talking specifically about Blade Runner 2049. Mm. Uh, and... I think when I watched it, one of the things I like most about it is that it uh, a it was long, and it and it got a chance because my fear was that we were going to get this Blade Runner, modern day Blade Runner action film or something, which was mm. you know clocking in at two hours exactly, and uh, and and had just you know lots of action sequences, maybe the the final battle, the third act would maybe turn into a big CG fest. What I liked about this one, and I should warn you before we go any further, we are going to be talking Blade Runner spoilers. I, I don't think we should stand on ceremony, Fletch. We should just, you know, talk about it in depth. What I liked about this one was the final act, the big the big battle at the end, was uh, not flying around a virtual CG world where I couldn't tell what the hell was going on and the cuts were so quick I didn't know what was happening. But, you know, it was a very old-school kind of um, fight scene, which was obviously filmed in a tank, you know, in, a, in in this instance, a sinking taxi or, or, or whatever. And uh, it was just a really old school kind of fight sequence. I th- thought it worked really, really well. I, I really enjoyed it. And of course, the emotional climax was, um, was incredibly satisfying as well. Because I think what this film achieves, maybe, that even the original didn't, was the original likes to... Um, relishes the fact that it's ambiguous, of course, especially if you watch the final cut. We don't know if Harrison Ford's Deckard is um, a replicant or not. And, uh, of course, you know, there's definitely an artistic choice there that, that it, it, that's a good thing to, to be um, ambiguous about that and let the audience make up their own mind. I think what this does very successfully is that it gives Ryan Gosling, uh, who I guess is the, the new Deckard in a certain sense, he's certainly the protagonist of the film and he is a Blade Runner, which is the same uh, occupation, of course, as Harrison Ford in the first movie. He has this fantastic character arc. You know, right up front, you're told he's a replicant. The guys are calling him a, in the office, in the, in the police station, they're calling him a, a skin job, aren't they? Uh, so right up, you know, he's a, re- a replicant up front. It sets up um, his character. He's clearly grappling with what 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 it means to be human or what, what it means to be real or not. You know, his girlfriend is a hologram and he kind of feels like that's enough for him. But... Um, Right at the beginning of the movie, it's set up that um, he's never seen a miracle, and he has to he has to grapple with what a miracle, what maybe what a miracle is, what that really means. And as it as we go through the course of the film, as he's hot on the trail, um, and doing all of his detective work and his hardcore 
detective work throughout the throughout the movie, he re- he really does begin to learn more and more about himself, his own background, and then by the end by the end of the movie, there is the twist moment, and he has a really satisfying character arc. And I think you know the final shots in the snow were. Uh, fantastic and i was i was very satisfied with with what he had there he he is very emotionless he just stands ryan gosling isn't given a lot to do in this film he's standing uh, motionless an awful lot and i guess that's part part of the course right that's that's the whole essence of his character is he he's set up as a replicant and um you know maybe uh you know people are teasing him that that he's not he's not a full human or whatever he's, he's not human but um so, so I guess that's the reason why he's not necessarily got an awful lot to do uh, in terms of range, but certainly in terms of his character arc, I was I was incredibly satisfied. So that's in essence that's kind of my take on Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I think it I think it I think it was great that it actually was what was it two and a half two three quarter hours. It 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 had space to breathe. It just wasn't lots of action sequences thrown together. And I thought that the character arc was really satisfying, maybe more so even than than the original. So that's kind of my take. What what, what do you think going into it? Going into it, I really did expect it to be mind blowing. And already right. listeners will know that I didn't find it mind blowing because I've set up what I'm saying in that way. Uh, <laughs> Roger Deakins on cinematography. Now, seeing what Villeneuve and Deakins did together on Prisoners and then Sicario, that I found mind-blowing. Uh, so going briefly back to the career of Denis Villeneuve, I'm afraid I don't know his French-language Canadian films. I came on board with Prisoners. I thought that was a moribund genre picture, except for Deakins' cinematography, which was astonishing. I hadn't seen Rain dealt with in that way. And... Jake Gyllenhaal as a detective the level of homework the level of application and dedication to character from Jake Gyllenhaal in Prisoners dazzled me even in the cinema his character arrives 20 or 30 minutes into the film and I was outside of myself while watching it and thought he is putting everybody else into the shade with the choices he's made he re- and and that's it's one of the films where I realized how good Gyllenhaal is what a capable actor he is when even on a prosaic premise which is not really far above a Grisham. He emerges with unusual and interesting character choices, but I won't go into too much detail about Prisoners. Suffice to say, it's a three-star movie, it's decent. Sicario was even better, and Deakin's cinematography on that, particularly in a a sequence in which essentially a a SWAT team going up against a cartel are completely in silhouette against a night sky of brilliant dark blue that I caught my breath while watching that there was sure. and th- even there's there's simple things like um Emily Blunt smoking a cigarette in parallax against a background of container offices so many so many shots in Sicario stand in my mind and in Sicario in particular what was impressed upon me was like Gyllenhaal in Prisoners Deakins had come to set and thought what can I do here Give me five or six scenes and I'll give you the world. I've got some great ideas and I've, it felt like, in a good way, it felt like a filmmaking exercise to see just how he could handle uh, shooting in twilight and shooting with the um, green-coloured night photography that was, I think it was originally in like a Paris Hilton porno. And that's right. how everyone knows it. One night in Paris. But yeah. Deakins used it in the cinematography for Sicario. And so the main draw for me 
in Blade Runner and my perception that they might be getting it right was that Villeneuve brought on Deakins and that to me suggested, well, if there's anybody who knows how to shoot rain and neon, and remember Deakins is the cinematographer behind the neon fight in Skyfall as well. I'm almost yeah. enacting it now, which was, again, a beautiful set piece where you almost feel like Sam Mendes says, I'm going to take a step back here because I know when I'm not needed, Deakins, you get in there and you do what you need to do for the next three minutes. And But mm. it, it never feels like, to me, it doesn't feel like showing off uh, it's not a solo in as much as it's a perfect song within a good album, I suppose. doesn't mm. feel like a masturbatory drum solo or a little bit of Eddie Van Halen or Steve Vai-style guitar twiddling or Victor Wooten on bass. Definitely works as part of a whole. just happens to be the best thing in that whole. Mm. So all of that had me delirious in anticipation for Blade Runner. I've had this a couple of times in the last few years where I try to avoid some of the publicity... And then a couple of days before, I realise I'm so bloody excited and I can't wait to see this film. And I wasn't, I had the weekend off, and on Saturday we saw Aronofsky's Mother, which I found to be a better film. I thought it was excellent. But I, as we entered the weekend, I thought, you know what, I'd rather see Mother second. I need to see, I need to be closer to Blade Runner. I'm almost counting the hours. Yeah. yeah and we decided to have dinner afterwards as well because there'll be so much to talk about and I don't want to delay this any, any further. And I'm not the, I'm no, um, Blade Runner is not my favorite film, but I was nevertheless very excited for this. The first obstacle in my appreciation of Blade Runner 2049 as compared to Blade Runner is that Blade Runner is film noir. It's Chandler in the future. It has all of the accoutrements of that. M. Emmett Walsh as the, um, shady sergeant that assigns him to the original mission femme fatales all over the shop mm. a hard-bitten private dick as its protagonist so much smoke uh, i can never say the name of the um painting technique but it's chiarusco i believe mm -hmm. the design by sid mead which is redolent of art deco but incorporates of all things uh kind of egyptian themes which are also seen in Alien, I think maybe Ridley was just interested in that at the time. Yeah, sure. So it's definitely like a Chandra adaptation, but happens to also be in the sci-fi milieu. And that's not what 2049 is. It's a sci-fi epic. I was trying to think of the other film we saw this year, which is a different genre to its originator, and I think it was Trainspotting. Yes, that's a good point. Trainspotting yeah. 2 has a plot, and the original doesn't. It's more... Yeah. Um, uh, is Buildings Romantic? The, or picaresque it might, we could probably call it a picaresque it's just a lot of things that happen to a protagonist then at the end of the film he becomes a man whereas yeah, Trainspotting sure. 2 is more about reflections on the past and it's definitely a different genre and that's what we had here with Blade Runner that's not a criticism what I brought to the film can't be called a criticism but that's, my, that's the obstacle I had in my enjoyment of the film that it's a very different genre Right, but it still um, deals with similar themes, and it yeah. it gives the film gives itself enough breathing room to do that in a in a an elegant and drawn out way. You know what what I was worried was that it was going to be an action film, and at least it wasn't it wasn't that. I thought we were going to yeah. lose a lot of what made the original thought provoking and uh, what made it stay with you. Because yeah. you know, you're you're right, the original is a film noir and. and this is less so. I it would argue that Ryan Gosling does more 
detecting in this one than Harrison Ford does. So, so yes, I do see what you're saying. It, it is a slightly different genre, I suppose. This is more a sci-fi epic. But it didn't... Uh, I don't think it sold itself out. I don't think it... I don't think it bottled it, you know? I really do oh, no, think it, no, it, was, I... it was being bold and it was taking really gutsy moves for a film of this much money. Uh, to it's, You know, this is supposed to be a tentpole... Tentpole film for the year, $150 million budget, two and three quarter hours long. Yeah. Dealing dealing with hefty themes, as did the original. So so I guess just in ca- counter to what you're saying, yeah, yeah, you're right, it's not a film noir, but uh, it didn't sell out. No, and it, it fits into a canon. Blade Runner at its time of production was part of a, a re-evaluation of noir. Lawrence Kasdan's Body Heat, for instance, Blood Simple true, by the yeah. Coens, came out a couple of years later. What this Blade Runner made me think of was Oblivion. Can't even remember the director, but it's Olga Kurilenko, Andrea Riseborough, I think, and Tom Cruise um, in a a slightly cleaner futurescape, and that deals with similar themes of humanity and what it yeah similar themes of what it means to be human. Blade Runner certainly made me think about a lot of stuff, and the primary emotion I had was uh, despair. The overriding feeling I had from watching Blade Runner, the first, well, the whole film, but certainly the first hour, was what Peter Bradshaw in his Guardian review referred to as a kind of ecstatic despair. I felt that. We know the cityscapes from Blade Runner, but then to see outside of Los Angeles, which wasn't examined in the original by Ridley Scott, and a a California, or indeed a western United States, completely devoid of natural life, Without yeah. trees, animals, um, farmland surrendered to greenhouse farming by the looks of it. It didn't make me want to live much longer. But that is, uh, I, that, I didn't want to make it to 2049. As well, right? that's, the, that's the point of the original too. The, the, the original, there's all these ads in the background. There are in this one as well about going off world. Everyone wants yeah. to go off world. That's, the whole, that's where it's at now. If you're left on planet Earth, then you know, you're one of the last. The, the other thing I'd say is um, this is a post 9-11 film, Fletch. Don't forget it. And uh, in post 9/11, if you're an action film like Man of Steel or whatever, everything blows up, all of the buildings, and there's rubble everywhere. And yeah. I guess if you're a sci-fi epic, then um, humanity's probably over. Oblivion, like you just said, it's another example. It's a yeah. cleaner, cleaner future in Oblivion, isn't it? Uh, Tom Cruise uh, has that really fun treadmill that uh, looks like a big hamster wheel, and it's all very yeah. clean. Yeah. Everything looks like it's an Apple iPhone. But uh, there's certainly no denying that the, the world's pretty much over, right? And uh, he's kind of a caretaker. So Yeah, um, and in that way, it's an artificial cleanliness. And yeah, but so that's what, what Villeneuve imparted to me. And these are my first, my first impressions of a film I've seen only once. But he imparted a future that I don't really want to be a part of. And I felt pity for those that were and also questioned why they, why they would continue, how they were stuck there and what lives they were leading. So it was de- it was depressing, and I know that that is a realistic future. If climate change isn't taken seriously and isn't dealt with, it's preposterous to me that politicians, out of as Al Gore said, uh, politicians are still unable to wrangle and come to terms with an inconvenient truth. So would prefer to bury their head in the sand, which you know, give another ten years, will be underwater. So they'll be drowning as well as suffocating. And yet here we are. Um, these are th- climate change. And overpopulation and just farming resources like meat, 
which mm. takes so much water to produce and are so energy inefficient. If as a world we don't come together and do something about that, then it won't be Blade Runner 2049, it'll be Blade Runner 2029. We'll get there quicker. Something in, <laughs> in terms of... In terms of a global aspect, I really like that about the film. A very diverse international cast. Uh, two Canadians, two Americans, and then the rest was a Mexican-American, a Filipino-American, mm. Cuban. Um, who else was in there? Well, Lenny James is... Most of them are kind of playing Americans, but there was a, an actual Somali-American in Bukhad Abdi. Lenny James is English. So I liked how it brought everyone together. The, um, the Terminatrix, I didn't really like that character... I didn't like the character of the Terminatrix, but Sylvia Hooks is Dutch, just like Rutger Hauer in the original. The uh, lady, the one-eyed lady, and we'll come to that a little bit later potentially, but the one-eyed lady is, and this is very, this is incredibly specifically diverse, she is Israeli-Palestinian. Okay. I don't know how many of those are acting right now. It, it Really, it must be fingers <laughs> on one hand. I don't think they could even, among themselves, uh, produce a Shakespeare play. Uh, so I, I really uh, I, I liked that and that to me felt like an interesting realistic vision of a dystopian future wherein all nations have come together in what is left I liked that aspect uh, going, so where do we move on from there the first no no I, I think you're right let, and, let's, um, hop, let's hop around please what do you well, no, sure I was just going to say again I, I mean I, I guess I'm just drawing comparisons between the original and this one but um, it is a dystopian future. Uh, one of the things I always loved about the original, in fact, in fact, the original informed my world view of where we were all going. Like when you, when you're a kid, I mean, I lived a pretty, I had a very good upbringing by and large. You know, I lived in the countryside, wide open space. Um, Many electric sheep out there, electric cows as well, electric <laughs> exactly. horses. You know, um, went to small schools. You know, I wasn't having to deal with inner city stuff and and the trials and tribulations of what. You know, since then I've lived in in London, and uh, and you know I've I've had exposure to that that side of life as well. But um, as a kid, you know, growing up, you get into Harrison Ford films because you like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and then from there you graduate to to things like Blade Runner a little bit, and then you're like, mm. okay, you're making connections because you like Aliens, because uh, I like the toys of Aliens, and then I'm like, oh, but that's like a whole film, and then, then who's Ridley Scott? Ah, Ridley Scott did Blade Runner. So you're starting to put all this <laughs> yeah. stuff together, and um, and <laughs> exactly, and it informed my worldview of what I loved the most about it when I was first reading about Blade Runner when I was I don't know, nine years old, ten years old, whatever, is that um, you know, all of all of the gags with the, um, uh, the big neon signs, the fact that there aren't many corporations left, they've all kind of amalgamated and gobbled each other up and acquired each other, and so, so the whole world is kind of run by very few corporations, and um, the fact that obviously you know a lot of the neon lights are um, in in Asian text, and there's this huge Asian cultural influence. Harrison Ford's eating noodles, you know. It's uh, as it, we we see that the world is becoming um, the, the Western world is is probably dying out, and and there's a, certainly the rise of the East. Uh, and that there, that to, to interrupt briefly, to interject, I should say that there is representative of its times, a very specific time in Hollywood. Uh, it might have been forgotten now, but it's very clear in films like Gung Ho, mm -hmm. Die Hard, Iron yeah. Maze, Rising Sun. The influence of Japan, America was shit scared of the Japanese. They thought, yeah. well, we beat these guys thirty years ago. Why have they come back even stronger? And there were Hollywood came to terms with that in some interesting films. 
as I say, Die Hard is one that addresses it. And yeah, yeah I, I think you're right to say that in Die Hard, Nakatomi Plaza in the centre of Los Angeles, that's a, uh, that's a phallus, a yeah. strong capitalist Japanese phallus in the yeah. heart of American commerce. And yeah. the same in Blade Runner as well. It probably doesn't mean as much to us, but Calif- um, yeah, Californians, but certainly Americans watching that in 1982, spitting out their uh, burger thinking, noodles? Yeah. Where's where's the meatloaf, Harrison? I thought you were an all-American hero. This is... It's interesting to consider... Oh, well, it's romantic to consider films, and then if we actually ask people at the time, they'd probably say, what, are you suggesting, Fletch, that we didn't have ramen in early 80s? Yes, we were eating ramen in Detroit and in Chicago and in Boise, Idaho. We knew what ramen was. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. It wasn't all just uh, meat and potatoes, but... Yeah, um, you're right about the the, cult, the creeping cultural influence. In this one, it's more Russia, isn't it? So anyway, I can't remember why we're darting around there, but uh, just drawing a connection, I guess, from the original to, to, to this one as well, and the fact that I guess it did inform my worldview of what a dystopian future might be like. It's not necessarily mm. all the trees have gone or whatever, but just the, the, the way the Western world could go. You know, like, like I say, if you allow capitalism to continue on its course, then maybe the whole the whole world will be uh, consumed by or controlled I should say by just very few corporations and you'll be eating some noodles and trying to read mm. Japanese signs but um, funnily enough this one it's an obvious point to make but this one did um, carry on a few of the gags with the signs there's the Atari sign in this one and there's the Pan Am sign yeah, two companies yeah. that uh, Atari does still exist but uh, yeah they make t-shirts now don't they they do make t-shirts I mean it, it's the brand that's been sold and um, yeah, there's yeah. A, a French developer Infograms bought the Atari name so if you ever oh, see Atari oh right I yeah, couldn't name an Infogram's title off the top of my head, but I definitely had a few when uh, I was a child. I think they did the later Micro Machines games when it got rubbish. And uh, oh. they may have done some Sonic the Hedgehogs that aren't really the full-fledged Sonic the Hedgehogs. Uh, or maybe they just published them. Anyway, it, that's by the by. I remember, they were the Armadillo, I remember, yeah. But certainly they, uh, they, re- they, they just bought the Atari name, and now if you ever see that logo on anything, then it means that they, they've published it as... Uh, it, I mean, it's, it's a French developer who, 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 like I say, I don't think they even develop anymore. I think they publish. So anyway, there's a few gags in there. That I did enjoy seeing some of these, um, like Pan Am, like Atari, uh, yeah. companies that aren't really around anymore. But, but uh, in the 80s, we all thought we we're going to swallow the world. Hmm. And there was, uh, I, I like that. I like that we're darting around because that's how I felt with the film. There was time to luxuriate in the cityscape in the future that it, created for us and i thought the creation of that future was sufficient i liked the first 15 minutes with dave bautista mm-hmm. i know him from wwe all those years subtitling the rest oh, really i found such incredible sadness in his performance and it gave me a window into what i hope will be the career that he pursues dwayne johnson is among the biggest box office drawers of this decade and even the last decade as my dad's always said he's the man that they parachute into a franchise to save it yeah, he's a movie star. Somehow, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not not a fan of him. I don't. I've got no problem with Dwayne Johnson at all. But quite how he's elevated. He's a, and I'm going to be a little bit overly critical here, but he's from the James Corden school of can do many things adequately. Right. Except that with Dwayne Johnson, with The Rock, he has he has an inordinate amount of charisma and a sense of humour about himself, and that's what we always say about James Franco. The only difference between Franco and LeBeouf, apart from work rate, is that 
the audience isn't sure that LeBeouf is laughing at himself, whereas they know that Franco's sneering and smiling. Sorry, not sneering. They know that Franco is smirking and smiling, and they're more comfortable with, oh, he doesn't really, he's, he doesn't take himself seriously at all. All of these William Faulkner adaptations and directing two films a year and the art installations and, uh, yeah, Franco's just messing around. Whereas I think deep down he's thinking, I want to be serious. You know, I went yeah. to university. Uh, <laughs> But he's not allowed to reveal that. But yeah, so going back to um, Dave Bautista, I don't want to assign too much profundity to what is, after all, a very brief performance. But he's able to convey a, such a sadness and uh, um, uh, a weariness. A man, a man whose entire life has been weary and is now coming to its end, and yeah. who's resigned to its end. And I liked what he did there. I we didn't catch Bushwick in the end. It was a picture that Luke and I trailed a few weeks ago in the podcast. Mm -hmm. I'll have to catch it on video on demand as I need to get into the habit of saying rather than uh, video. Um, I'll need to catch it. I'll need to catch it on video on demand. But I I really like the beginning of that. I did recognize that it was an off cut from either the Dick story, which I read many years ago, wrote a paper for it uh, in high school. Or should I say I wrote an essay in secondary school. But I, I, lis listeners, I did actually go to... Anybody from Suffolk will know that Orwell High School was really called Orwell High School. The principal, Alison Fraser, decided when she came in to no longer be a headmistress, she wanted to be a principal, she turned a secondary school into a high school. So I've had this many, many times where I've said high school, and you think I've got a hang-up about it, wouldn't you? Uh, people have said <laughs> high school, and I've said it was a high school, OHS. We had the sweatshirts. Uh, Anyway, yeah, I read the book, I did an essay for it in sixth form, and I think that scene is from the book, and it's definitely in the original David Webb Peoples, Hampton Fincher, Hampton Fancher screenplay, although it was cut. Mm. I liked the execution of that. To its credit, to its massive credit, already with Villeneuve, and I liked Arrival as well, I didn't even mention that earlier, um... We're speaking of Villeneuve in the same way that we talk about Christopher Nolan. I expect a level of proficiency from him. So he has to do so much more to take it to something that impresses me. It's not fair, as we've talked about in the past. You know, if Michael Bay just puts uh, an actual female character in one of his films, we'd fall out of our chairs because it's, it would show an improvement in his filmmaking ability. And it's like, you know, getting a kid from an F to a... This is, and this is kind of, actually, this is how... Orwell High School functioned. They it, it was very important to them to get the D kids up to a C grade. Yeah, because that's where the money lay, and yeah, that's sure. probably an indictment of uh, of how modern teaching is as well. Whereas if you're A star, well, A star, A, even a B, they weren't that fussed. So you don't get if you're a, a top achiever, you don't get any plaudits. But if you can just get slightly better, it makes so much more difference. And so I feel yeah, with it, it doesn't feel fair to Villeneuve that he's made at least a solid three out of five film. And I'm, I've walked away mainly with negative criticism. And honestly, I didn't connect with the film particularly well. But there's so much in it, which is done fantastically. And yeah, the, the fight scenes, the brief scenes of action are really good. I think, yeah, they're, they're, they're good, aren't they? I need to see it again, but I thought they were good. Yeah, they're fantastic. And um, it, it, it was done in a way where I actually could tell what was going on, like I say. I... But yeah... Um, we man, we always do jump around on the evening glass. <laughs> Sidetracked us terribly there. No, no, no. You're absolutely fine. I think we were actually just talking about that we the fact we enjoyed the fight sequences of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. That's yeah. absolutely fine. Uh, what I would say though is that you said you walked away from what you thought was a solid uh, three out of five film. You're giving it a bit of a hard time. You are flying in the face, of course, of 
general critical opinion, I'd say. You mentioned yeah. earlier on the uh, uh, Peter Bradshaw Guardian uh, review, and of course he, you know, he gave it a rave review. Yeah, uh, Kermode R- gave it five stars. He certainly did. I respect Kermode a lot. And uh, if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, it's funny enough. It's not like the ninety-five, ninety-six that a lot of these films get, like Force Awakens or, or whatever. Suddenly it's on ninety-eight percent or whatever, which is ludicrous. But um, Rotten Tomatoes, nevertheless, is eighty-eight uh, percent. Uh, for the tomato meter and the, the audience scores 83 so it generally speaking people are loving this movie I'm hearing a lot one of the greatest sequels ever made or better than the original that kind of thing like I said my own personal assumption was that this actually kind of did what the original did in terms of the themes and, and that kind of thing but I, th- I think it did it a little bit better um, I think it was overall yeah, a more satisfying I just think it was a more satisfying film Ryan Gosling's arc I thought was Far, far, far more satisfying than Harrison Ford's arc. Um, you know, at the end of the first movie, I'm, I'm left like feeling like Harrison Ford did, doesn't doesn't really quite know what's what's happened uh, to him, and uh, I guess he's had some yeah. questions posed to him about humanity. But I don't really feel like he's any further forward. Ryan, You're right, Gos- yeah. Ryan Gosling <laughs> is posed with some very pertinent issues about his own existence and what it means to be human, uh, and grappling with the fact that he is not considered. Um, you know, he is treated in a substandard way in, in this world that he lives in. Uh, he suddenly thinks for a moment that he's special. And, yeah. and instead of, instead of, he, he's, it he then dawns on that he's not special. And that he, um, I love the Seinfeld joke, uh, am I not special? Could my mother have been wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it, it dawns on him that he's not special. Uh, and nevertheless, he, decides to help people and he decides to um carry the movie forward help yeah. the people that need it bring the right people together and then has this wonderful poignant moment at the end where he is resting satisfied that he's done that even though he was grappling with the fact that a he wasn't human b he couldn't even have a real girlfriend his computer girlfriend was killed before his eyes yeah. and all of this stuff happened i man i loved it i thought it was absolutely fantastic and um, I, so to, to to address address some of the things you got into um and it's a whirlwind in my mind uh i didn't connect with gosling's character but i was heartened that he wasn't special too many sci-fi pictures well too many messiah thing you know yeah too many big pictures in general at the moment so for instance the matrix and i know that was a while ago but particularly recently hunger games and most of the superhero pictures mm-hmm. uh, show us uh, an ordinary protagonist who it turns out has built within them an incredible superpower that they never knew about and they are the key to saving the world now that's a fantasy we all have we all are the lead characters in our own films except our films are m- m- very boring mm-hmm. and nothing particularly happens and we should you know in many ways we should be thankful that nothing interesting happens to us if we were at the center of a terrorist atrocity and saved the day yeah, cool. And then for the next 18 years or however long, we'd have tr- tr- tremendous post-traumatic stress disorder. So <laughs> I liked that in this film, it did like it did look like it was going in... Well, it was definitely allowing the audience to presume that Gosling was important. Then mm. it took that away from him, and that was... Emo- I know what the film was attempting. It didn't hit me in the way that it should, but it, there was emotion. It did evince some emotion from me, and for you it seems to have evinced more when that was taken away from him, but he makes the right decision, a moral decision that, not the right decision rather, but a moral decision to nevertheless play his part 
even though he is unimportant. Now that comes to, I can circle this back round to my second obstacle in enjoying the film, and I agree that I concede that both these obstacles might be a matter of taste. The first is that I have preferred the film noir world of Blade Runner as opposed to the sci-fi epic world of 2049. And the second is that Blade Runner is an inconsequential story about inconsequential people. 2049, we're told every few minutes, this is going to break the world. I've had that yeah. in so many films recently. Yeah, I, I didn't, yeah, re- I didn't yeah. really need that. And it's true. They, it, it's true. The story that I they agree. wrote is a story in which mankind and its relationship with the world around it will irrevocably change. But mm-hmm. that didn't appeal to me so much as the Chandlerian small story world of Blade Runner. Yeah, I, I like the small scale of it. That um, The characters are profoundly changed, but on a much, much smaller scale. I didn't connect with the pastiche of Blade Runner's final scene, this time with snow instead of rain. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't connect with me. It's not about length, you know. It's not about um, bombast. I didn't feel it as strongly as I wanted to. I, I need listeners to believe I'm... It isn't my intention to be contrary. I wanted this to be my favourite film of the year. Mm-hmm. And not even because I adore Blade Runner. I like it at the a, a little bit like with, let's say, Empire Strikes Back, although I think that Blade Runner's a better film. My engagement with Blade Runner is at a cinematic level, not as a fanboy, mm-hmm. but rather that it's a great film by Ridley Scott. Like the way that we talk about, there are people who love the aliens because, oh, they're great and they're, uh, their faces come out of their mouth. But no, we engage rather with it as... A set of films, two of which are exceptional, one's interesting and one has its moments, as we found out about six months ago when we were talking about Genet's Alien Resurrection. Yeah. So I really wanted to love this. And I've uh, and I love Roger Deakins and I like Ryan Gosling. But it it didn't connect with me as I expected. Well, certainly uh, despite the critical acclaim, uh Sans Fletcher Walton, I hasten to add. Mm. Um, it's not really doing the business. Um, we don't have to go into it in too much depth, but I did recently share an article which I thought our listeners would find interesting on our Facebook page. And the article was from Forbes' uh, website. And there's a few things that um, it discusses, the fact that it, it's just not raking it in. Uh, it, I think it opened in the States with uh, $31.5 million, uh, which... Um, uh, basically, you know, as we all know, and as, as listeners know, that y- your opening weekend these days is where you make your money, and you don't really films don't really have legs in the in the same way. You know, it's really yeah. the, the window of theatrical release to home video, or like you say, um, VOD. I think I still call it home video, but anyway, the window is that much smaller these days. Films don't really get legs if you've um, if you've missed out on your opening weekend. That's about it. And there's a few reasons they give. Um, I'll run through a couple of them now. You can certainly chip in, Fletch, uh, about what you think. But um, obviously, like I said at the beginning, this this was bold. It was R-rated. It was long. Uh, it was a film for adults. Um, but one of the reasons that Forbes gives here is that, that the competition for R-rated adult skewed stuff was was actually pretty, pretty um, intense because you had th- the likes of that Kingsman sequel, which I don't think you and I have seen, uh, American Made, American Assassin, there was Mother, there was It. It kind of stole its thunder a bit is one of the other reasons it gave. Because uh, It just had this huge opening weekend and seems to have done really, really well in North America and here as well. So I guess if you're... Um, and the article goes on to say that if you... Um, if you are 
an adult that maybe has kids and you're going on the date night and you've got to think about the babysitter or the neighbors are looking after your kids or whatever it is you've got to you're only going to see one film that month and you're weighing it up are you going to see yeah. the two hour it or are you going to go see the two three quarter hour blade runner you know there's not these these are just real decisions that people do have to make so maybe the fact that you know we often say that everything these days is a 12a or whatever you know a lot of the time that's what i my fear was that blade runner was going to become this 12a action film for a modern audience like the fast and furious crowd or whatever yeah. um they didn't do that they, they they were bold but as a result of that they actually ironically went up against some stiff r-rated competition from the likes of it american made and um uh, the the Kingsman sequel, and I think a yeah. lot of people were probably the the people I was just describing probably went for for Kingsman. If I'm perfectly honest with you, or or it, as I say, Blade Runner's marketplace is difficult because its themes, its level of filmmaking, its seriousness, maturity, and length is all comparable to, let's say, The Revenant, hmm. uh, an Oscar bait prestige picture, which would in this country come out in about January or February and usually in the States they're doing it uh, late November, December. So for instance, the new Paul Thomas Anderson with Daniel Day-Lewis Phantom Thread, that comes out Christmas Day. So really, Blade Runner should be considered in that pantheon. But you're right, in its marketplace, it's yeah, it's sad. I mean, none of this is particularly discouraging to me. The original Blade Runner didn't do particularly well, didn't even do critically well. And I think the critics are overcompensating. Um, not that they were all necessarily working 35 years ago. But I think uh, this you see this very often. Given the opportunity, it was slept on in 82 and 83. Its re-release in the early 90s was significant. But I think now maybe they're giving it one more star than they should. I in a way, I don't know if I'll see it again at the cinema because for the reasons you've outlined, there's so many other things to watch and it is more than three hours out of your day. But mm. I can't, I can't wait to see it on home video and properly under, try to properly connect with it in the way that you have and Will Ludkin has. And I've said to Neil Byrne as well, he didn't get much out of it either. And maybe my perspective is slightly influenced by him. But I think that if I in six months' time, if he buys it on Blu-ray or what's the one above Blu-ray, 4K. Yeah, I'm not even on that. I, 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 I'm just on Blu-ray. And I think if we stick it on mute without a level of expectation and not requiring any commitment to character, I think we might... I think, firstly, Neil will be... Byrne will be incredibly inspired in his own work because he works in graphics, creating landscapes and cityscapes. Yeah. So I think he'll be inspired there, but I think also we'll be able to better connect with the vistas involved. Like, the the scenes in Las Vegas were beautiful. Oh, I loved all that stuff. I loved all that um, stuff. The, the, you know, I, I wanted to live there. I wanted to be Harrison Ford's character. I wanted to be Descartes living in the ruins. Not even, actually, not even in the ruins. Living in that deserted casino. Soft reds and terracottas of those scenes. It's a, it's a film with... It's got colour palettes. There's so much it gets right. But as I said, I don't know if we can applaud a film just because it's as adult as its original. Sure. And one of the... Maybe we can, maybe we can't. But, and you're right, on one hand, in this marketplace, it didn't come out as a 12A, and that's really good. But at the same time, this is the sequel to Blade Runner. Uh, it needs to be mature. It's, a, this is, it's meant to be hard sci-fi in the best way possible, which is about themes of humanity and where we're headed. That's all Philip K. Dick always wrote about, where we're headed and what's real. What mm -hmm. is human? 
And there's individual scenes. I mean, we've talked about the brief action scenes, which were all executed very well. I'd also put into that the sex scene. That because that stands out as a, something of a set piece, two or three minutes on its own. Yeah, that was really good as well, and I yeah. like that character. And I I don't really see the criticisms. I I probably won't tolerate the criticisms of the film as in some way sexist. I thought one of the most interesting themes was essentially replicants for replicants. Yeah. So he he can't have as a replicant. He doesn't get a human girlfriend. He doesn't get a replicant girlfriend. He has a slave has a slave. Yeah. I like that as a th- as an interesting thing. We we'll, we will revisit this. The listeners should be in no doubt that in nine months' time we'll go through this properly. We'll also, um, in a f- I don't know if it's in a couple of weeks or in a couple of months, we'll be watching the original Blade Runner as part of Luke's A to Z. It's ah, there's there's so much to talk about it, but I didn't it didn't hit me as it should have done, Luke. Well, you say that. I think sometimes so often it's the mood you're in. I I really do think that. And uh... no, I think that's true. Yeah, it it can be and. It's very important to consider, clearly this is impossible, and as we've said before, you know when a film is bad and you know when a film is very, very good, but a lot of those films in the middle, especially with a film like this, where my perception of it has been three out of five, extraordinary in some ways, but didn't connect with me. Yeah. Um, but everybody else has said this is supreme. Especially in those situations, it's important to revisit them every few years. So we'll see it next year and maybe I'll need to see it a couple of times every couple of years and and think, well, how does it affect me now? I've, I've had that with Close Encounters. Didn't understand it as a 14-year-old. Didn't understand it as a 21-year-old. Byrne explained it to me when I was in my late 20s. Saw it with him earlier this year. And it did begin to connect with me in the ways he spoke of. It is about the artistic process and leaving behind everything in order to achieve perfection and, uh, and reach your goals. Yeah. And that made more sense to me. And another good example off the top of my head, and, I'll, and then a film like The Exorcist, it works well for Catholics. It works well for those that believe that if there is a heaven, then there must also be a hell. If there is good, then there is evil. And if there is God, then there is a devil. And a, a devil can possess you. Those without religious affiliation may not find that much in Exorcist other than, oh, that was a you know, good horror film, well executed. But The Exorcist is the biggest horror film of all time. A Byrne was mentioned in this, like... It is being spoken of, and he said it. Yeah, adjust it for inflation. It's the Exorcist. The Exorcist blows them all away. Yeah, it does. Yeah, you're right. And uh, but I I saw it, and it didn't hit me as hard as it would do for many other people. This is, I think, one reason Kermode loves it is, and he named his. It's interesting we talk about Kermode in connection with the Exorcist. He named his documentary "The Fear of God." He also did the Blade Runner documentary, which first aired on Channel 4, I think, late 90s, early Yeah, aughts. Yeah, I, I loved, I loved that it. Documentary. Bloody loved it. That was yeah. the first time I'd seen Morgan Paul as Holden in the hospital room mm. after he's been blasted. They know you're here. You do not know what pain is yet. You will learn. Bring it to me. breaks the world. We have to go. I'm coming with you. Where is he? The future of the species is finally unearthed.
it's good that we've been able to present differing viewpoints because one concern I have with recording the podcast is if we talk about a picture like Logan Lucky or something we both enjoy, then it it becomes uh, rather a mutual appreciation society of aren't we both great for liking this film that's so obviously great? Yeah, we're we're brilliant. We're pretty much brilliant. And but I, this, this wasn't my intention to um, oppose critical consensus. It just it, it didn't connect with me as I'd expected. Can't wait for it to though. Cannot wait for it to. Yeah, maybe. Harrison was good though. Harrison was good. Harrison was good. He I, keeps making three out of five films for me though. Like Crystal <laughs> Skull is three out of five, and Anchorman two, and Force Awakens, and this one also. I, I really want him to make one more great film mm. on par with uh, Witness. Well, I think a lot of people would be saying that this is the one. I think a lot of people are sort of saying this is the best Harrison Ford performance in fifteen years. This is his his big moment. And they he, want to give him the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, don't they? they they'll lobby for that hard, and uh, he'll probably get it. It's a really good... It's that kind of performance. Um, Harrison Ford's in it for about 40 minutes. Doesn't come into the film for a long, long time. Judy Dench in Shakespeare in Love, or uh, Beatrice Strait in Network, you know. I think they'll lobby for him, and I think as a valedictory, it'd be nice a nice cap on his career, I suppose. He's, he really is getting on. I worry. We're going to... We've been so lucky that we haven't lost any of the original movie brats and so many of their contemporaries, Dreyfus and Ford among them. Um, in spite of Dreyfus's drugs problems and Harrison Ford's willingness to like <laughs> leap under closing doors or crash airplanes. Smashed into that plane when he was landing, was it yeah. last year? Not long ago? Yeah, yeah. I remember listening to the flight recording and he said, like, he, he's using Where'd all the official Where'd that plane come from? Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's like, uh, I, I'm the bozo that almost landed on the other. Yeah, sorry. And I don't know if the guys are kind of hiding their mics and going, it's Harrison Ford. <laughs> you know. Yeah, sorry. You were, I, so you liked his performance as well then? Well, I thought it was a really good performance. But, but you're right that he's not been... Um... The Forbes article touches on this, and it's something that I ruminate on a lot. The last big Harrison Ford movie, truly big Harrison Ford movie, I remember, that wasn't a Star Wars or an Indiana Jones that really made the money, uh, was What Lies Beneath. That's yeah, like the really last. Good in that, I thought as well. Yeah, he yeah. was, and that's the last time I remember him being a movie star, tr- truly, because he's now, he's now gone beyond that, hasn't he? He's now this kind of, I suppose it's almost like the the Paul McCartney's of the world or whatever. And you call them legacy artists, don't you? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think Harrison Ford is, is in that now where you, he's a legacy artist. He's gone. But the last time I remember him being a true movie star, like a working movie star, putting out fresh films that put bums on seats and had big opening weekends was what lies beneath. And since mm. then it, it hasn't really worked. You and I can maybe list, uh, we list a few. There was Morning Glory, wasn't there? The, was that yeah, James L. Butch say. production? And the, there was there was a few. Morning Glory with Brendan good. Fraser. Yeah, I really enjoy it. But my point is, it's like I say, the Forbes article touches on this. He doesn't make the money like he did. You know, the, the films he's done in the past fifteen years that have made the money are Star Wars and Indiana Jones flicks. It's yeah. not really the same thing, is it? I uh, didn't know he was in Ender's Game, for instance. Yeah, he's he's in that. Yeah. Um, so looking back at the last, looking back at his filmography this century, I agree with you. What lies beneath is the last is the last time that I was excited about a Harrison Ford film, and that excitement, that promise was fulfilled. He was good in it. Michelle was good in it. 
classic Zemeckis. Uh, it's insubstantial, I suppose. It's probably superficial, but I still liked it. But going through, there's a few I haven't seen. Um, but it does have its moments. Uh, Bruno. He's good in Bruno. It's my one-on-one -on -one exclusive interview with Harrison Ford! Also, here I am with Harrison Ford. Put Put off. Do you remember? <laughs> But thanks very much yeah. for uh, sitting down with me and discussing Blade Runner 2049 Fletch this evening. I think it was the main thing we focused on. Um, I also enjoyed Goodbye Christopher Robin. Um, and if you are able to try and get to the movies uh, to see that, if that's the sort of thing that appeals to you instead of uh, epic sci-fi, then of course you're welcome to do that too. Um, Fletch, was there anything that you wanted to bring to the listeners' attention um, coming up? The other films that we watched during our hiatus, including among them... Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me and Wind River, which our friend and listener Adam Manning had something to say about. I think those can save for another day, possibly in the review of the year. I liked Wind River. It's by the writer of Sicario. One of the It's only his second directorial effort, but his first proper. The uh, freshman attempt was a risible kind of horror. Uh, so we'll save those for another day. I think what we've provided is certainly grist to the mill listeners will come back at us with their opinions on Blade Runner because as I say um, it wasn't my intention to be oppositional to critical consensus but at least we may have sparked something of a debate and uh, you never know I might be able to schedule it in the next couple of weeks and give it another go yeah although I don't think Burns going to submit to that to that two hour 40 minutes running time just to have confirmed what he thought he knew from the first 20 minutes of this <laughs> one of the first time but um you mentioned yeah please it's a bit you mentioned Blade Runner as well. Uh, sorry, you mentioned Twin Peaks as well, and um, I have to say that Twin Peaks: The Return or the, the new Twin Peaks show, which concluded a few, few short weeks ago, um, was one of the best things I've seen all year. Certainly, well, certainly on the television, but it, that was a complete tour de force of David Lynch, and uh, yeah. I'm incredibly grateful and thankful that we've been bestowed what 15, 16 hours of David Lynch this year. Um, yeah, it's it's phenomenal. I don't think you've concluded it yet, have you? Fletch, you still no, catching up? Nowhere near. I think we got to the third episode, and that's oh. not. It's certainly through lack of trying, but it's not because we were turned off by it. There were in the first three episodes, there were two scenes where we really did look at each other and say, "Is he taking? Is he taking the piss?" <laughs> you know, where you talk you, a little bit. There's a few. It never that never lets up. You get that yeah. throughout it, but but I tell you what, it builds up to a beautiful crescendo. But I, yeah, and I I I can't, in all honesty, say I can't wait because if I couldn't wait to watch it, I would have been watching it for the last twenty weeks because I've had it on the Skybox forever and ever. But w I will invest myself in that as the nights draw in, as we enter what will likely be a punishing winter. I'll be at home with Twin Peaks: The Return. It does remind me as well that. Um, we talked briefly at the beginning of the show about the various uh, disclosures and revelations made by the New York Times this week and it's reminded us how Hollywood works um, it may not be criminal but it's certainly distasteful and the power dynamics are appalling are grotesque in many ways and it's what Lynch talks about again and again Mulholland Drive, Twin Peaks, Twin Peaks The Return, Lost Highway he he knows about he knows how to put that on screen as much as we um, talk about his ability to manifest on celluloid nightmares he's also able to put across what men will do to women mm. i've i've always rated that about lynch as well mm. um yeah fire Blue walk Velvet with me too. um 
I actually watched yeah. Fire Walk with me for the first time this year. Um, I'm ashamed to say I hadn't seen it before, but but my God, it, you know that film did really well in Japan, uh, I think, and um, a lot of territories, foreign territories, where um, mm. maybe um, the female uh, population is is treated in a slightly different way, held in a slightly different esteem or whatever. I, I, I think uh, I think it spoke to a lot of women who felt oppressed, is what I'm trying to say. I think it did speak to a lot of women that, that felt oppressed. It was harrowing for me, actually. I, I struggled with um, I struggled with Fire Walk With Me more than I did with Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah. E- even though Twin Peaks The Return does have lots of scenes of someone just walking upstairs for 20 minutes or something. <laughs> yeah, like Inland Empire. Inland Empire is another one that I think uh, we're 10 years removed from it and now and certainly in future I think audiences will point to that and say they'll they'll think rather gnostically oh Lynch was trying to tell us something well he was making it pretty blatant that this is how Hollywood operates that essentially it's a parade of dancing women for old bastards Mm. Uh, you know um, he's hardly hiding it that's the thing with Lynch I think the uh the level of obscurity he places over his message is often just the, the filmmaking techniques. As you say, having someone walk up a set of stairs for 20 minutes or <laughs> a scene that goes on and on and on. Like I've, Berners told me, and I'm sure it's already entering notoriety, the sweeping scene during the yeah end of an episode in Twin Peaks, The Return. Yeah, yeah, you, um, you really think I, that's going to go somewhere, but it it's just... Uh... It's just sweeping with a broom. Yeah. <laughs> and Byrne said it's entirely playing on the audience's expectations. Every episode has ended at the roadhouse. Yeah, the bar, yeah. With a band playing, yeah. and so we know what's going to happen. And then Lynch says, no, you don't. Lynch allows things to hide in plain sight. He cloaks them in an unusual approach. But he's very blatant in what he's saying, that men will abuse women. Mm. Pounded home that point over and over. And uh, yeah, I had the same reaction as you to to fire walk with me we watched it at the prince charles cinema in a revival mm-hmm. i really enjoyed it i enjoyed it, it a enjoy, lot it enjoys not the word of course but yeah it, it was a tremendous experience and uh, I, I as you know i'm a david lynch fan first and a twin peaks fan a distant second and so i don't i don't always need all these wacky characters and it's charming but what i'm there for is david lynch telling me about about how people treat one another, yeah, and abuse and brutality and uh, redemption. Do get in touch about um, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Fletch obviously um, seems slightly different opinion to what what seems to be the consensus online. So uh, do get in touch and let us know what you think. The way you can do that, of course, is by going to onesensationalshot.com. dot com. There's a form on there you can fill in if you want to get in touch that way. Uh, also, let us know what you think about the new design, or if we should just go back to the old one, because I'm I'm truly curious. I can't see the wood for the trees anymore, which uh, probably sounds like a, a David Lynch-ism. Yeah, other easy ways to get in touch with this, there's Twitter, of course, um, at One Sensational. And, of course, we're on Facebook as well, One Sensational Shot. If you search on Facebook for that, you'll find us pretty, pretty soon. Do get in touch like Tom Hadley did, where he uh, got in touch about Blade Runner and thought it was one of the greatest sci-fi films ever made. You let us know what you think as well. It would be great to hear from you, and we'll definitely be reading out listener feedback on the next show. But... This has been The Evening Glass with Luke and Fletch, and for the time being, I'm going to say goodbye. Between the sheets and ladder, sleep through two alarms, and when I stumble through the door with my hands through the arms of the sweater that the dry cleaner gave me back to size down. Make a 